I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Don't you all like that guitar music? I just got a new guitar. I think it's a Fender. Fender. I'm not sure. I'm not a guitar guy, but I've been practicing every night now, and I know one chord. Nice. One chord, and I can't do it without looking, you know, and placing my finger slowly, but starting to learn the guitar. Some of the people out there, I told them I got a guitar, and everybody's wanting to play with me, you know, on Facebook. They're saying, hey, let's, let's go jam together. I'm saying, you don't want to jam with me. I've had one lesson. But uh, that is not me playing the guitar in that intro, folks. So, and your lesson think. comes from your Apple computer. It does, right? it does, and that, that's that's heresy. And we'll talk <laughs> about that. Uh, can we allow Apple computers in the local church and you know still uh, maintain a sense of Christian unity? And I don't think so. I think and speaking I, of guitars, if you are in the Credo House, you can peek into Michael's office and see a guitar that is signed by every member of U two. View too, which is, is pretty genuine. cool. It is genuine. Yeah. And so feel free to come and steal it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now we're gonna have break-ins here. <laughs> um, folks, welcome. This is the Theology Unplugged broadcast, and I am Michael Patton. I am joined today once again by Sam Storms and Tim Kimberly. Tim is uh, obviously on staff here with mm-hmm. us at Reclaiming the Mind. All of us are graduates of DTS. Tim, you are a graduate in historic theology. That's right. Uh, you are a Binghamite. Right. Yeah. Yes. What's Which a Binghamite? Bas- it's someone who basically takes every class they can of Jeffrey Bingham, and uh, and I also the two main profs in the historical department, uh, Jeffrey Bingham, and then Doctor John Hanna, and I loved both of them absolutely. So I'm probably a Hannahite, Hannahite, just as much. It just, it's but, harder to say, right? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. But Bingham, he's uh, just love him dearly. He's 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 the com- complete package. He's the, right, yeah. one of the tallest guys you've ever seen in your life, and so his illustrations just seem to be. He's Double. got the longest fingers you've ever He's seen. He's got a wingspan like you can't believe. So when he speaks with his hands, you just you feel like you're in a 3D movie. You know, <laughs> where will he go in the right? NBA draft? Uh, I know. Well, he claims that basketball isn't his thing. I think he went down the uh, the theology. I can see that he's that, a little bit slow to be playing yeah, basketball. Yeah, I don't know if that's his uh, forte. <laughs> And yeah. you, whenever you graduated with the first graduating class of DTS, <laughs> did, did they even have a historic theology department? We were historical theology. We were we, we're, we were the subject matter that Tim later studied. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what did you? What, what was your specialty or focus? Well, I majored in historical theology as well. And you went on and got your doctorate in historical theology. Is that right? Well, I went, got my PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas, and it was in a program called the History of Ideas. Okay. It basically was the history of philosophy. Didn't you do something on your, your, your um, uh, dissertation? Yes, my dissertation was on Jonathan Edwards on original sin. Okay, good. Yeah, but I, uh, yeah, I had uh, John Hanna for uh, numerous courses. Uh, my professor that mainly mentored me there was S. Lewis Johnson mm-hmm. in the New Testament and theology department. Mm-hmm. So, well, I was a New Testament, uh, and you know the reason why I went into New Testament was because I was more interested in theology in general. But I was weaker in New Testament, so mm. that's my philosophy there. And I felt like the New Testament department was very good because Dan mm. Wallace became a, a good friend and mentor. And so, this is my one claim to fame. Uh, in my second year at Dallas, or maybe I think it was second, maybe third, I was grading for John Grasmick. And I will never forget uh, when the students had to submit a paper on a, a problem dealing with textual criticism, and I received one paper, the likes of which I had never seen before, and I had no idea how to grade it because this 
gentleman obviously knew more than any faculty member. <laughs> it was Dan Wallace's oh, yeah. first textual criticism paper at Dallas Seminary. I graded it. Oh, that's funny. And uh, I think I gave him an A. Yeah. <laughs> nice going. Have that's you brought good. that up to him since? I don't know that I've ever told Dan that. He, he may remember, but. Uh, well, maybe he'll be listening to this and hear about it. <laughs> that's that's funny. Um, just real briefly, folks, we do have the. Theology Boot Camp coming up this summer. Check out on the, check it out on the site. Those of you who are in the area here in Oklahoma City, Edmond area, uh, we also here at the Credo House have Monday night Bible study in which I'm going through Romans. So uh, feel free to join us. That is open to anybody. No registration or anything. Just come show up at the place and we will uh, and, and you can join us. Theology Boot Camp is uh, Saturday all day Saturday. And it is, that's what it is. It's a boot camp on theology to where we are going to cover all the major subjects in six hours. Is that right? Well, it'll be about four and a half hours of teaching, but we'll have time for discussion and a break for lunch and things like that. So six hours total will be the duration. All right. Very good. Um, well, folks, we are talking today again about the same subject matter we have been talking about the last few weeks and talking about unity and diversity and trying to take this uh, this idea of unity and diversity and make it practical. We believe in unity and we believe in diversity, and there's some real, I guess, objective ways we believe in it. Objectively, we believe that we are united in Christ. You know, We are united in the body of Christ. Whenever we become believers, we are baptized into one body and one spirit, and we are guided and empowered by one spirit, and that uh, uh, working together, we, we are the hands and the feet of Christ. And we are united in our adoption as sons. So unity is a very firm, firm principle that is in the New Testament. Men, women, young, old, uh, doesn't matter who you are, we are all in, one in Christ. But we also believe objectively, in some sense, uh, in diversity that, you know, there's that differences. Men, women, differences among us, different gifts of the spirit, different purposes, different, different, uh, all kinds of different things that we have. And so that's something I think everybody could agree on, no controversy there. But whenever it comes to the issue of theology, sometimes people take this same concept and say we ought to celebrate the unity and diversity in theology and say that there is unity throughout all of church history upon the main essentials that we agree with, that we believe that all members of all time everywhere have all confirmed who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? He rise from the grave. Um, uh, we are sinners. Uh, there is a God. You know, there's no such thing as diversity about, uh, you know, atheism and that sort of stuff. We all agree about that. But there's also kind of, uh, you know, if you, if you're, if you're new to theology, one of the cool things that you're going to discover, and I discovered this in historic theology more than anything else with John Hanna. And as he, as he begins to go through the different people, in church history, starting with you know the Justin Martyr, and then going to Origen and Saint Augustine and and Gregory the Great and Saint Thomas Aquinas, and I loved all these guys. I loved them, but I was confused because I thought that whenever I read them and whenever I whenever I looked to them, they would agree with me on everything, or at least I would agree with them on everything, or at least I can match up to one big united whole. And, and then I began to figure out, gosh, they. Origen believed that? Well, I guess he's not a Christian. Wait, St. Augustine believed that? I guess he's not a Christian. And so uh, pretty soon here, I had a couple of choices. Either I was the only Christian because nobody ended up agreeing with me on everything. I mean, main essentials, yes, 
but all these little different things, side things, they're out there. No. And so I, I had to embrace this idea that God allows diversity in many areas in the church, even in our beliefs. And even in people who love Jesus as much as you do and are reading the Bible as much as you are as well. You know, I think there's this common belief that, well, if you really love Jesus and if you're really loving the Bible, we'll all believe and, and the same thing. And you're not sinning. Thing. And you're same. not sinning, yeah. yeah, that we'll all believe the same thing because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us all. And so, so you know, why do we need doctrinal statements? Why do we need all these things? Let's just have Jesus in the Bible and let's live by the Spirit and we'll all walk in unity. Mm-hmm. And what you discovered is that that's not the case. Let me let me try to propose this. Okay, let's let's talk about. I've got before me the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has what you must believe to be a Catholic. Okay, not only do you have the Bible, but you also have the Catechism. And as a Catholic, I can't come in here and say, "Well, you know, I was looking at this stuff about Mary, and I, I don't agree with it. Can I still be a Catholic?" No, you can't. I mean, you, you have to agree with it. You, that's that's part of it. You have to. You don't have to embrace it in the same way that everybody does, but you have to agree with a statement of faith as a Catholic. You can't. You can't be as they're called cafeteria Catholics. So, a very big doctrinal st- or, uh, catechism here, and then I've got one here with a lot of smaller creeds. It's called the Creeds of the Churches by Leith, John Leith, and. Um, as you go through this, it starts with some of the earliest creeds right here, Irenaeus's Rule of Faith and 190. Before that, even, we have some rules of faith. And I, I, if I was to look at the scripture, I might go to Deuteronomy mm-hmm. and look at uh, the Shema in 6.4 and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, which seems to be you know, a pretty good essential mm-hmm. that, that we've held to ever since then and, and that created unity. And then the, you know, you can go through the scriptures and find more and more kind of doctrinal statements. What we must believe. I think, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a good one. You know, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he rose, that he appeared, uh, on the third, or rose on the third day according to the scriptures, that he's buried. Those types of things became, became the cardinal and I use that word and a lot of people may have never heard that, but cardinal, central, essential the most essential issues of the church. And we would agree with Paul. You know, we, we need to believe, we must believe that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. After the New Testament, there's a few other, you know, statements of faith and songs that seem to be creedal in their understanding. After the New Testament, you have the Apostles' Creed, which is a little bit longer. You know, kind of a summary of what we need to believe. After that, you have the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed comes in and talks about the Trinity, 325, uh, the Council of Nicaea. And that's where the church really, it's not, it's not where the Trinity begins, but it's where the church really begins to articulate it in a language that we have inherited. You know, one God who eternally exists in three persons, uh, all of which are fully God, all of which are equal. That's not the Nicene Creed, but that's my summary of it, which could become a statement of faith as well. Don't count on it, though. Okay. Uh, Chalcedon, Chalcedon, you, you and I, all three of us sitting here, we agree with Chalcedon because we believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Which came about 130 years after uh, Nicaea, about 451. Yeah, maybe. yeah, that's right. And so we see this, the creeds expanding throughout church history, through the Bible and then throughout church history, we see the, the what we must believe become more and more extensive. 
And then that's why sometimes Protestants have problems with Nicaea. The Trinity was the first ecumenical council, and there was kind of a, a revision of Nicaea uh, right after that. And then the Chalcedon was 451. But then you've got three other ones that most of us as uh, as Christian or four other ones that most Protestants don't know anything about, don't know whether we agree with them or not. Most of the time we can say we agree with the major points, but the minor points we'll have some disagreement about on those, uh, on those last uh, four of the seven ecumenical councils. The reason why I say this is because it gets harder and harder because it gets more and more burdensome. The, the doctrinal statements get longer and longer and longer and longer uh, to the point where you do come to the 16th century and you've got this, this, all of these beliefs that are extra biblical, all of these beliefs that are beyond the Bible and that, that put tradition, it seems, first before the Bible. And then we come to today and this Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is done, I think, in 1995. I think that's whenever the last one was done. Not positive about that. Yeah, 1995. Um, it, it becomes so extensive that it becomes a burden upon the backs of Christians. And what I'm trying to ask here, I guess, in Lee's broadcast that we've been talking about is how do we draw lines? Because we know that that there are central elements and there are things that we need to embrace. Maybe maybe uh, <clears throat> one of we, some people, Sam, as you were talking about last time, would say, well, let's just get back to the Apostles' Creed. But to me, that's not really quite enough. Yeah, there are, you've mentioned the, the Nicene Creed in particular, which is more extensive than the Apostles' Creed. And there are those that I would call theological minimalists. And what they want to do is they want to, to get down to the lowest common denominator, theologically speaking. And as long as we affirm that, that low-level, very broad um, statement of uh, basic beliefs, that that ought to be enough. And without in any way trying to diminish the importance of the apostles of the Nicene Creed, the fact of the matter is it isn't enough. Because when you read the Nicene Creed, it doesn't say anything of at least substance and significance about justification by faith. It doesn't talk about uh, soteriology or the doctrine of salvation much at all. We have to remember, as you indicated, both the, the Nicene Creed was birthed out of a controversy that was focused primarily on who is Jesus Christ in relationship to God the Father. Are they similar? Are they of the same uh, divine essence? How do they relate one to another? Uh, there's very little in it about the Holy Spirit. So the, these creeds, these, these early confessional statements were all birthed out of controversies, out of battles that were being waged designed to resolve that particular issue, but they weren't meant to be comprehensive affirmations of faith. When you come to the, you mentioned the, the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation, both the Roman Catholic Church, the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, notwithstanding all of its corruption and all of its, um, uh, some of its bizarre practices and beliefs, the late medieval Roman Catholic Church affirmed without hesitation the Nicene Creed, with affirmed without hesitation the Chalcedonian Creed, so did Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon and the Protestant Reformers. So in other words, those creeds, as good as they were, functioned no, with no meaningful purpose at the time of the Reformation. Uh, you had to go beyond it. So if you're a theological minimalist and you think that we want the lowest common denominator, maybe the Nicene Creed, I happen to be, by the way, a theological maximalist. 
I want to expand as much as is reasonable and within the boundaries of Scripture what we affirm uh, to be truth. Um, so, again, I, I think that when people understand how these creeds came about in the history of the church, what birthed them, what was the context and controversy out of which they came, what function did they serve? And then you look at today's world. We have such massive diversity today, so many heresies, so many cults, so many deviations theologically, that simply to say, well, we all embrace the Nicene Creed, so let's just pat each other on the back and get along, that just simply doesn't work. Because there are, uh, like I said, they could have done that at the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church could have said to Luther, hey, Martin, we all embrace the Nicene Creed, so let's get back to work and not talk about justification, not talk about the nature of sin or the bondage of the will or the reality of purgatory or its, uh, or you know whether it is real or, as you even mentioned, uh, who Mary is or the issue of indulgences or what actually happened in the death of Christ and whether or not it's repeated in the sacrifice of the Mass. They could have said, we don't need to address those matters because we all agree on the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. And you can immediately see how although important it is, how utterly inadequate it is for the life of the church in the centuries following. <laughs> Tim? Yeah. I yeah. I, I didn't know My neck's getting that. sore from nodding. From so, nodding? Okay. Uh, so emphatically <laughs> along with us, Sam. And uh, I love the way that, that he worded that. And I kept thinking that, that I think today, you know, it's so easy just to, we're so caught up in our TV shows, we're so caught up with all these things that we just say, hey, just give me simply what I need to believe. It, it should be simple. You know, just give me a, a brief synopsis of the Bible. Give me a, just tell me who Jesus is. You know, let me worship him. Um, but like even C.S. Lewis beautifully talks about complexity and says that when something like, like electricity, you can't simply explain electricity because it's such an important and complex thing mm-hmm. that it takes it takes work to explain electricity. Sure, you can explain it to a child in a sentence, but to really grasp electricity, it's going to take take some some conversation and some thought and some some fine tuned articulation. And and C.S. Lewis says therefore that our theology should follow suit and that we shouldn't expect a very simple. Uh, simple statement of of the God of the universe and of salvation and of of man and what's inside of man, and so so I'm with Sam uh, that I, I think that that if we just say hey in eight sentences we're going to explain the God of the universe and salvation and man and and it's all going to be worked out. Uh, I think Lewis would say uh, don't be afraid of the complexity. Step right into it. Hmm. Well, so a few weeks ago or maybe it was last week, Sam had mentioned uh, something about the openness of God issue. And you probably wouldn't find it whenever we talk about the openness of God. It is a, it is, I guess it really in the 90s became an issue and is still continuing to today to some degree to be an issue about what does God know and how does he know it? When does he know it? You know, does God know the future? The open view says, no, God does not know the future. And so therefore the future is open. Well, that has become part of a lot of people's doctrinal statement now. You know, I think we even included something in the Reclaiming the Mind doctrinal statement. I remember putting, we believe in an eternal God. And the word eternal, you know, really spoke to that issue because we believe that he is transcendent 
above time, above uh, space, that he is that he is uh, non-material, that uh, he does not uh, experience succession of moments in, the, in his essence or in his being the same way we do, even though he does in his, in his relationship in the incarnation. And, and so we, we put these things together because of the controversy. And the controversy, it's saying, let's get back to the Nicene Creed, let's get back to the Apostles' Creed, says let's illegitimize the 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 growing pains of the theology in the church throughout history and to me sometimes sam that sounds like i want to get back to my baby picture you know it, it's got the basic dna and it's you know it doesn't have all the scars and all the hurts and it doesn't have all the attitudes and the the irritability the same way i do i want to get back to that whenever i was a little baby you know well here's a good example of this um, 50 years ago, or even, you know, we could even go back 500 to the time, would, would there ever have been in a statement of faith an explicit discussion of what the gospel is? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And yet now we're in a, we're in a time, in a, especially in the American evangelical world, in which just defining the gospel has become so crucial because of all of the accretions that have built up around it and all the mutations of what gospel means. And there are those who are trying to expand the gospel, make it much larger and encompass all of the consequences of what Christ God accomplished in Christ and make that the content of the gospel. They don't differentiate between the essence of the gospel and its entailments or uh, the content and the consequences. So, in our statement of faith, we have a paragraph on the gospel itself. And we say, this is what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. It's not more. It's not less. Now, there are implications. There's a life that is to be lived, as Paul says in Philippians, that is worthy of the gospel. There are, th- there are activities on the part of human beings that we must pursue because of the gospel. But those aren't the gospel. Mm-hmm. The gospel is what God has accomplished in the life, death, resurrection of Christ uh, for the reconciliation of sinners to himself. So it's just interesting to see, a lot of it determined by the time in which we live, that something that you would have thought was so f- basic and so something you just take for granted. Well, of course all Christians know what the gospel is. Well, the fact is they don't, mm. or they're confused about it, and it changes the whole issue of evangelism. It changes... Uh, what we understand the mission of the church to be with relation to the gospel. So you're asking, we've been talking about in these in these uh, sessions about how broad is a statement of faith, how much needs to be said, how where do you divide uh, or unify, and even over something as as basic and fundamental as the gospel, because there are now so many variations on the nature of the atonement. Is penal substitutionary atonement at the heart of the gospel? Mm. Well, I believe it is. Mm. Well, there are others who say, no, it isn't, and so they won't say anything about Jesus in his death having satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of those for whom he died. Um, so, again, that's a good example of, of an issue in which it's become more necessary in our day than it was in previous years to define the very nature of the gospel itself. One of these days I want to talk about theological novelty and what's the attraction there because it seems like we always have a novel idea that is brought up that goes contrary to kind of the established truths as it's progressed that so many people are attracted to. That's just a little parenthetical statement there that I want to 
throw out there because it's mm-hmm. it's important when we're talking about these types of things. There's there's this this development that takes place, and you know there's some things you shed and there's some things that you pick up. And I believe that as the development takes place, we actually are established stronger than we were before. I know there's a lot of people that would disagree with me, and I talk about this all the time, that I don't look to get back to the, you know, the second century church and the third century church. Um, I, I don't think that's the purest, and I don't even think they're necessarily the smartest. I think they're brilliant men in their age, dealt with controversy, and but but the church in a, as an organism has matured since then, gone through good times, gone through bad times. We have a lot of scars, a lot more scars. We wish we didn't have them, but we have them. But they've helped mature us. They've helped us get to a point where we can say, we feel as if we can articulate the gospel, the good news of, of salvation in a w- way that is more, more ar- articulate and, and more, um, more in keeping with the whole of the canon. And, and that, that's just kind of the way I feel about that. And that's why we would have differences and, and, um, additions and, and further developments within our creeds even. Well, and I think that's why we embrace and why we don't uh, shy away from the, the thoughts and the views of people that we would disagree with because those thoughts and those views are driving us to better articulate our faith. And that's what the Nicene Creed is, the Chalcedonian Creed. They are artic- articulations of, what, of the totality of Scripture based in light of of views that did not seem and to that's be why, that's why orthodox we have views. heretics corners exactly heretics corner to not celebrate heresy but to help people understand how heresy springboards orthodoxy yeah so like without pelagius for instance if someone just said like well jesus is a great example for me and i just follow jesus example and without having the roots of someone like Pelagius in our lives, we would say, well, is he only an example or is he the one who, who saved you from your sins and rescued you? you know, and so, so just certain words and sentences that someone might say, you could go fully behind them, but they are taking you on a trajectory that is going to take you to a bad place. No, I'm preaching right now, okay? Folks, <laughs> preaching. Uh, what Sam said, the least common denominator, that that simply won't do. I mean, you're, you, to find the least common denominator, to try to find unity, I understand where you're going and I understand why you're going there. But at the same time, it sacrifices the faithfulness to the gospel and the development of God in church history as God has moved within the church and, and helped us to better articulate our faith. Well, and the idea would be if you go back there, you're going to go through the history again that we've gone through the last 1,800 years or so. And so you'll find 1,800 years from today, if the Lord does not return, that you've already gone through all those things. I mean, because mm. if you don't learn from history, it repeats itself as, you know, the common we don't thinking. Get, we don't so. want to get back to our baby picture. No, the that's development right. of the DNA, not just the DNA itself. Yeah, because you might think of those as, as golden years, getting back to your baby picture, but then you forget what you were like in junior high, yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to go back through that. You want to be where you are today as yeah. a mature person. Um, real quickly, Sam, I want to bring this up because we've been talking about the unity diversity. Last time we talked about it in the church, and we said, where do we draw the line, and where, you know, who do we have on our staff, who do we allow to come to our church? I want to talk about it with regards to the seminary now. And we started this whole series talking about the doctrinal statement at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we said, you know, Dallas Theological Seminary's doctrinal statement is a little bit more extensive than most that are out there. There, there are some I know that are, that are more extensive. 
but but whenever we're talking about training people uh, and uh, for ministry, for pastors, for missions, for for outreach, for uh, leadership. Do we take a different philosophy in the seminary? Do you think we should have a longer or shorter doctrinal statement in the seminary than we do in the church? That's a great question. I think we would have to begin by asking the question, what is the purpose of the seminary? And let's, let's take two seminaries in particular. Let's take uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, where Al Mohler is president and our alma mater, Dallas Theological Seminary. Southern Seminary is a Southern Baptist entity. It's a Southern Baptist institution designed to serve the convention. Dallas Seminary is an independent seminary that is represented in its faculty and students by a wide variety of denominational affiliations. Dallas basically is designed to serve the church, but not any one particular denomination. Um, Southern Seminary is funded by denominational giving and is designed to serve um, the Southern Baptist Convention. That doesn't mean, obviously, that everyone who comes out of Southern is even going to be Southern Baptist or that they're going to go into Southern Baptist churches because sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. But uh, Southern, I think, has a responsibility to its uh, donors and to the cooperative program that largely subsidizes it uh, to be faithful to the beliefs of the Baptist faith and message. Uh, now, of course, at Southern, you don't want to talk about an extensive doctoral statement. The abstract of theology of uh, James Pettigrew Boyce is required of all faculty members there, and that's that makes Dallas Seminary statement look like a walk in the park. Hmm. Um, much more detailed, much more rigorous. Um, so I would think that if you are a seminary serving a denomination, then you may have to narrow the, the lines a little bit more strictly. You may be a little bit more specific in what you tolerate either among your faculty or among your students because you are, in a sense, beholden to the denominational entity that you serve. Dallas, on the other hand, or, or for example, Trinity Seminary is uh, owned and operated by the Evangelical Free Church. So, for example, the Evangelical Free Church is, by confession, premillennial. So to teach at Trinity, you have to be premillennial. You don't have to be dispensational or hold a particular view of the rapture, but you have to be premillennial because they're serving the Evangelical Free Church. Gordon Conwell serves, multi like Dallas, many, many denominations. Um, you know, we could go down the list. Many of your, like Reformed Theological Seminary or Westminster, they serve uh, several of the Presbyterian denominations, whether the OPC, PCA, um, EPC, for example. So I guess the question would have to start with that. Um, if you are uh, owned, operated, and uh, being, uh, you exist in order to primarily supply your denomination with qualified, theologically qualified pastors and leaders, you might need to have a somewhat longer, more detailed, more specific statement of faith. So the now, churches that they go to and they place them with know what they're getting. Exactly. Well, for example, at Dallas, uh, as far as, and you correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I think I'm correct, Dallas does not require a particular view on the uh, recipients of baptism. I think the Dallas Seminar Statement of Faith would allow both for paedo-baptism and credo-baptism, either infant baptism or believer's baptism. And... 
Southern Seminary is a cradle Baptist. It's a Baptist, Southern Baptist mm-hmm. school. So all the faculty there have to believe in believer's baptism. I don't think the faculty at Dallas Seminary have to believe in believer's baptism. Am I We'll find out soon enough yeah, after we'll, this is broadcast. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so um, that would be um, the kind of issue that would come up in, in addressing how specific, how narrow should the boundaries be drawn in terms of a seminary. Are they denominationally affiliated? Are they serving a particular demographic, spiritually speaking, mm-hmm. community in the body of Christ? Are they there to... Uh, and at the same time, though, you just said it correctly. All seminaries want to be well represented by their graduates. So even seminaries that aren't uh, denominationally affiliated, they don't want someone to carry a diploma and bear that name who's going to deny some some basic fundamentals of the faith. Um, let's say, for example, let's just take eschatology, for example. Uh, most seminaries are rather broad in their eschatology. They, they're flexible. As long as you believe in the second coming of Jesus, that's enough. Well, most of those seminaries would not want to grant a diploma to a full preterist, mm. somebody who believes that Jesus came back in the only way that he ever will come back in 70 A.D. in the judgment upon Jerusalem and its temple. Um, so they'll, they might be very broad in other elements of eschatology, but they draw the line on the future, visible, personal, bodily return of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think most seminaries would say, most evangelical schools would say, we don't want our name being associated with hyperpreterism. Yeah. And I think that's right. They shouldn't. Yeah. But Dallas, of course, as you know, is much more specific in what it would require and expect of its graduates. Yeah. Southern, you can, I think at Southern, you can be pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill, but you do have to believe in the personal, visible coming of Jesus. Hmm. Well, you know, I guess you'd have to separate this, and this would be something that we're out of time for, but we mm-hmm. could go on and on about because you, you could draw the distinction between like Southern and then places like Duke and then ask the question, now, not, not what are they doing, and according to their purpose, what should they be doing, but is there a should with regards to evangelical education here in the 21st century for everybody. Should we, should we have uh, these types of seminaries where they're specific towards a particular viewpoint and to where they are expected to produce a, a certain type of mold? Or should we, or, or should that be something that they do after they've been educated? You know, you, you get educated first, you make your decisions, then you go into the Baptist seminary because you've made a decision to become a Baptist. Therefore, you're going to come out of there trained as a Baptist. Um, it, it just seems like okay, let's let's go out of of schooling to uh, some school to where they will show me what I'm supposed to believe. You know, mm-hmm. and what's our responsibility as far as education within the church and you know how do we how do we represent broad evangelicalism and not simply indoctrinate people in something that they've just traditionally always agreed with and that's a that's a hard mm-hmm. thing and i know that we're out of time but that is something that we're i think we're dealing with to some degree today to where you have all these people who are who are molded in certain ways but they you know are coming away kind of disgruntled because they're acting as if they never got the chance to really believe for themselves and that's why you get a lot of this novelty that happens that they step out of their box kind of like a teenager who's been who's been grounded their whole life and then finally they get ungrounded and 
you know, they go kind of crazy. I'm, I'm sorry for starting all that because I know we'd love to get into that, and it's, it's, we're already over time. That'll be our cliffhanger. Yeah, that's right. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Sam, for joining us as well. Mm-hmm. Tim, thank you for having me. As always, um, it's great to have you on the show. And, uh, guys, you can contact us. You can get in touch with us. A, the best way, I guess, is just to go to the website, www.reclaimingthemind.org. You can call us up here. I don't know the telephone number, but uh, you can email theologyunplugged at reclaimingthemind.org. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. God bless you all, and have a good day. You have been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. These broadcasts are made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For more information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit our homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.